turn with me, if you will, in God's Word to Luke chapter 22. While it is by no means a requirement, we remain standing for the reading of God's Word because it is our God's Word. This is not man's Word. This is the very words of our God from heaven. And these are the words that He wants us to hear today. And so we stand and we give our attention and we listen because our God is speaking. Luke chapter 22, we're going to read verses 24 through 38. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 882. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader, as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned again, strengthen your brothers Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, Lord, here are two swords. And he said, it is enough. So ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time uh, in it this morning. Your word, O God, is sharper than swords, it is sweeter than honey, wiser than Solomon, and more penetrating than the most piercing of eyes. It's in your word that we know you, that we learn humility, hope, confidence, and salvation. So let us come eagerly, not hiding, but desiring for our sin to be exposed so that your healing might be experienced. Speak to us, we pray, and give us ears to hear. Amen. You may be seated. There's an old saying, heavy is the head that wears the crown. And what it's trying to do is draw an analogy to the weight of the crown on the king's head and the weight of the burden that he bears as the ruler and leader of the people. In other words, with leadership comes responsibility. Leadership, well at least leadership done right, is hard. And it's isolating, 
and it's costly. Uh, Those who see leadership as an opportunity to be served or honored, uh, praised and adored, uh, they are following a pattern of leadership that is wholly incompatible with God's design for authority. And, And it's not just incompatible, it is diametrically opposed to God's kingdom. And here's the thing. Everyone, everyone ends up leading in some way. It's not just our government leaders. It's not even just our church leaders. Uh, But you have leaders in the workplace. You have leaders in the home. You have parents. You have older siblings. Everyone ends up leading at some point in some way, especially if you're a Christian, because, because Christians are called to lead the world into truth. Evangelism, in a sense, is leadership. Because we represent the one true God. And so whatever the Bible says about leadership, it applies to all of us in some way. And our passage speaks about leadership. And and it's for all of us. None of us are exempt. Now it's one thing to say we all know uh, what, it's, what the Bible says about leadership. It's quite another thing to actually believe it. Most, maybe all, of us live our lives in opposition to this passage. I know that's a bold statement. But this passage stands directly opposed to our wants, our desires, and our expectations. Secretly, we think that the call to lay down our lives is for most, but not all of God's people, and that we are somehow exempt. And so as we look at the disciples this morning and their their claims at being the greatest, we need to do so honestly and see our own tendencies and desires in the disciples. You see our own quest for glory. And then we'll not only be able to hear Jesus' words of correction, but, but also see how Jesus trains his people to lead as he calls them to. And my my hope this morning as we look at this passage is that we will see that every Christian is called to lead in some way and the call to lead is a call to lay down your life for those you lead. That's really what we want to see this morning. It's funny, isn't it, um, how a bunch of guys can start debating who is going to betray Jesus and somehow end up arguing over who's the greatest. And that's what happens here. Uh, I know it's been several weeks. I was on vacation. It's been a while since we looked at Luke. But, but in the previous passage that we looked at last time, Jesus told them one of them was going to betray him and they started to, to, to debate among them who it was going to be. And then somehow, <laughs> just like that... It became a debate about who's the greatest. It's really not surprising when you think about it. One says something like, well, maybe it's you. And that one says something like, are you kidding? Everyone knows I'm the master's most loyal follower. And then someone else says, no, you're not. Jesus would tell you, I am. And on it goes. And suddenly now, it's not who's the lowest 
most likely to betray, but who's the greatest? There's something in us that just wants to be the best and to be recognized as the best. Whatever we do, whatever matters to us, we want to be great at it. That might be your career, it might be parenting, it could be sports, it could be hospitality. None of us wants to be average or below average. And even if we don't want fame, we at least want to be seen as exceptional. And we usually define or identify being exceptional with some degree of authority, some degree of recognition. That might be a promotion at work, or it might simply be being recognized so that people come and seek your counsel. But at some level, in some way, we want to be elevated because of the work we put in and be rewarded for it. I'd be absolutely shocked if anyone in this room can't identify in some way with this. Now I know the response. So what's wrong with that? The Bible says hard work should be rewarded. Well, yes. Yes, it does. But the million-dollar question is when? In verses 28 through 30, Jesus tells the disciples that sticking with him and putting in the work will be rewarded. One day, they will stand in judgment over the wicked, over, over those who abandon Jesus. And he's talking about the last day. And that's crucially important because look at what he tells his disciples to expect in this world in verses 35 through 38. Basically, he says he's sending them to war. The world is going to hate them, persecute them, and put them to death. That's what obedience and loyalty and devotion to Jesus will get them. Not comfort, not praise, not promotion, but mistreatment, betrayal, possibly imprisonment, even death. That glory, that reward is reserved for the last day. On our way home from Warm Springs uh, a couple months ago, uh, someone asked me, what's the most profound thing I've learned as a Christian or something to that effect? And my response was that, that if it appeals to my flesh, if it feels really good, it's probably not from God. And yet, what feels good is easy to sell because it's what we all want to hear. Think of how many Christians take a kernel of truth and then turn it into something that's about their glory in this life. Yeah, it's easy to see in the health and wealth gospel movement. Just trust Jesus and you'll be healthy, free from sickness, and you'll be rich. We see all sorts of things justified because of their popularity, right? If the world loves it, we must be doing something right. Look how big our church has gone. Clearly, we're doing the right thing. And so we end up mimicking the world and the creation of, of, of our own celebrities. We have ministers and musicians who have grown wealthy and built empires in the name of the gospel. We see leaders... In the church, use their authority to control their people, claiming that an infallible, godlike status, twisting biblical truth. How often do leaders say something like, I was put here by God. You disagree with me, you're, you're disobeying him. They see their job as controlling and subduing and conquering 
those under them, bringing them into obedient subjection. We see this in the patriarchy movement. That similarly exalted fathers, starting with a God-honoring call for husbands and fathers to step up and lead in the home, a good call, how tragic is it that many see dads as above scrutiny or question where children must get their dad's permission to take the Lord's Supper each week, where husbands lecture their wives on how to do everything as if the calling of a leader was to micromanage and demand perfection out of those they lead. There are those who think it's the church's place in the world to occupy the place of cultural prominence and power and that we should be the ones to set the rules and render the judgments. That day is coming, but not in this life. Jesus says that that kind of leadership belongs to the Gentiles in verse 25. And and he doesn't just mean those who are ethnically not Jews, most of us in this room. He means spiritually not his people. He's talking about a type of leadership that is fundamentally contrary to his kingdom. Uh, That word translated in verse 25, exercise lordship, is the very word God used when he created man and told him to subdue the creatures, the animals, the birds, the fish, and 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 the livestock, and so on. It's then repeated in Genesis 9, and we're told that it will bring fear and dread into the animals. When, when leaders seek to subdue those they lead, when they see their subordinates as being there for their own comfort and service, they are treating them like animals and they are denying the image of God within them. And when you deny the image of God within someone, you assault the God whose image they bear. And it's against this that Jesus says, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you also uh, become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. In other words, leading is about seeking the good of those you are over, above your own desires, your own good, your own comfort, and your own safety. And that means that sometimes you will need to say yes when you don't want to, and sometimes you'll, you'll need to say no when you don't want to. Because the decision must be based upon what is best for that other and not what is most comfortable for you. If you have a position of leadership and your head is not heavy, if you're enjoying it, chances are you're doing something wrong and you're out of sync with God. Because the call to lead is a call to lay down your life for those you serve. Now, I need to emphasize again that no one is off the hook. Everyone is called to serve in some way. It's unavoidable. Whether it's your job, your family, your sports team, or simply in evangelism, everyone's called to lead in some way. And so where do we learn how? What does Jesus' school of leadership look like? Well, that's where we want to spend the remainder of our time. Because it starts with Jesus. It always does. He's the gold standard. Anything worthy of our consideration begins and ends with him. And anyone who knows Jesus understands that greatness means serving in sacrificial ways. As he watches his disciples debating who is the greatest, he stops and he asks them, who has the place of honor? The waiter or the one eating? Uh, 
And everyone knows the answer. The waiter, the servant, does not have the place of honor. The one being served does. But what has he been doing all evening? Well, he's basically saying to them, like, while you were all arguing about who's the greatest, did any of you realize what I was doing? I was serving you. John tells us that he also washed their feet that night. All the while knowing that this was his last night and his last meal with his disciples. He knows that he has less than 24 hours to live. The meal he serves them, the way he washes their feet, these are anticipations of his death on the cross. He knows what kind of crown his head will wear the next day. And all they can do is argue about who's the greatest. How alone he must feel. How distraught his soul. How heavy his head must be. But if not him, who? Who else will save his people? He's the king. He's the Lord. The job is his and his alone. The only way to save his people is to take their place when when their punishment is poured out. Verse 37, he must be numbered with the transgressors. He's quoting Isaiah 53 that we saw in our declaration of pardon. The verse before, uh, the one he quotes says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It's a well-known prophecy about the Messiah. And did you notice what the Messiah was called? Not the king, but the servant. The servant who bears iniquity so that many can be counted as righteous. It's painful. It's costly. It puts the needs of others before his own comfort. That's the kind of king we have. That's leadership in Jesus' kingdom. Is there anything more beautiful, more glorious than that kind of king? He knows there's a reward coming in its proper time. Not in this life, but the one to come. After his death, he will receive his reward. He will return to heaven. He's content to walk the hard road to get there. And in preparation for his departure, he turns his ministry over to leaders in the church, people like Peter. But Peter isn't ready to lead yet. He thinks he is. He thinks he's stronger than everybody else. If everybody else falls away, not me, Lord, you know, you know. And Jesus says, Peter... You're not even going to make it through the night. But hope is not lost. Because Jesus has prayed for Peter. And his failure will not be the end of his story. In fact, it will just be the beginning. Jesus essentially says to Peter, You won't be ready to build others up until you have cowered before a slave girl. Only then we see the world for what it is and my kingdom for what it is. Only then 
will you minister out of your weakness. Only then will you truly know what it means to serve and therefore what it means to lead. And into Peter's failure comes those comforting words, I have prayed for you. Your worst is not the end. It is just the beginning. And that promise isn't just for Peter. It's kind of lost in the English. Probably not the King James because it had plural and singular for you. But, but we don't anymore. And in verse 31, the word for you is plural. He's not just talking to Peter. But to all the disciples and all of us. Satan's going to throw everything he has at us. If you expect a warm welcome from this world, you are in for a big disappointment. That's what verses 35 through 38 are all about. Peter's just one example of what we can expect. If you belong to Jesus and you don't know what it is to fall flat on your face, it's just a matter of time. You will. You will be brought low. You will be humbled and even humiliated. You'll realize that your visions of glory and being the best were a pipe dream and that he's not lucky to have you. You're lucky to be had by him. The most painful seasons in my life have been the most beneficial. Where my delusions of glory have been crushed. Those times have reminded me that that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world and it does not exist for my glory. And that his call to be a leader is not about my glory or my comfort. And it's at times like that when I need to remember his words. I've prayed for you. I've been numbered among the transgressors so that you might be numbered among the righteous. And I'm making you more like me. I'm calling you to serve the brothers. I'm calling you to lead by laying your life down. I wish it was a lesson that we could learn once. But my quest for glory keeps rearing its dumb, ugly head. And so I have to fall over and over so that he might lift me back up. And he patiently and he faithfully, steadfastly continues to teach me what leadership looks like in his kingdom. And he affords me the privilege of serving in ways that I don't deserve. My wife, my children, this church. Each and every one of us is called to lay down our lives for those we lead and to put their needs before our own. That's the call of leadership. It's hard. I struggle to do it, and I'm guessing you do too. It's not always the calling I want, but it's the calling I have. And it can only be done by his strength. That's how he forms leaders. Bringing them low and raising them back up in his strength. But there's another way. It's in the meal that's set before us. The Lord's Supper. Because the bread and the wine are are pictures of the cost that he paid to save us. 
That's what, what leadership is to him. And that means it's also a picture of what he's called us to. Until you see yourself in the bread and the wine, you're not listening to the call of the Lord in your life. When Jesus calls you, it's not to comfort in this life. He bids you to come and die. And he gives you the promise that those who stay with him in trials will eat and drink at his table in his kingdom and sit on thrones and judge the wicked. But until that day, he shapes us and he trains us and he calls us to practice greatness by laying down our lives for one another. And so I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this great gift from our God. Well, please join me in prayer. Our gracious Savior, our glorious King, we confess that our views of leadership are often more like the world's than yours. We want comfort, recognition, glory, At least that's what we think we want, but what we really want is you. And so we ask that you crucify our pride, our idols, our quest for glory, and make us more like Jesus. Let us lead by serving and thus know true greatness, we pray. Amen.